You see, Collective Church, if we were really, really honest, I think we could all agree, Christian or not, that the Bible is very strange. The Bible's odd. The Bible's a bit weird and hard to swallow at times. And for many skeptics or saints alike, there are challenging portions for us. But among the most challenging is that of the supernatural and divine. Christians and and, and those who don't follow Jesus alike are like, yeah, sure, give me all the love, churchy, you know, love homeless and take care of the homeless theology you got. But for many, when a topic like angels, angels is introduced, then immediately immediately it's, it's arm's length. And Christians, if we are honest about what that was, It's that the biblical, supernatural components often don't fit into our theology. The stranger, who if you were here last week, you remember, that's what I'm calling this mysterious, unknown, brilliant, dynamic author of the book of Hebrews. So the stranger works hard to preach a sermon to make a case with the book of Hebrews that the biblical, supernatural components aren't just vital, they're our starting point. A fuller, richer understanding of angels is a fuller, richer understanding of Jesus. To undermine angels is to undermine the integrity of Christ himself. So a proper right doctrinal awareness of the supernatural, as difficult and as puzzling as it may be, would change the way we think about God, the Bible, each other, our eternity, and even ourselves which may seem doubtful because what does a cute little Cupid-esque chubby cheek angel have to do with me? Not a thing, because that's not an angel. That's an ugly baby. You know what I'm saying? Right? Collective, if we are honest, most, if not all, we have a stained understanding of angels. Right? Pop culture has not helped in one bit. Even a little bit. I want to prove to you how pop culture does not help. I brought a few pictures. Yeah, all right. Picture number one. Woo! Who remembers this? Who's been touched by an angel? Probosco has. Jeremy has. Lily has. Oh, my gosh. This looks like the album for Queen, doesn't it? Like, like... All right, so that's them. Next, whose mom had this painting in their bathroom? <laughs> Me too. Yep. <laughs> what in the world are they thinking about? All right, now who's seen this movie? Again, only a handful of people. This is John Travolta as Michael the Archangel. He's a, he's a fun-loving, smoking, drinking kind of angel. He's one of those guys carrying dead puppies, it looks like, whatever. Now this. <laughs> Who here has seen City of Angels? This movie's actually pretty legit. I actually don't mind this movie. No, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm getting the so-so from our Mr. Rotten Tomatoes. This movie's actually okay. <laughs> The reason I chose this photo is look at his face. It's so ridiculous. What is he like? This is the most angelic face that Nick Cage can make. Don't get me wrong, I love Nicolas Cage. If you don't, then just leave now. Obviously, we need a reformation of a true and right biblical doctrine of the supernatural, period. But we'll start today with angels. 
The very angels that when showed up in scripture, it was electric. It was remarkable. It was terrifying. And the stranger has one goal today. That if all the angels were put collectively and fused together, they would still even pale in comparison to the remarkableness of Jesus. So open up to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to start actually in verse 4. This is the stranger's treatment on angels. Is it exhaustive? Far from it. But this is easily the most detailed, angelic dissertation in all of the Bible. The stranger wants to accomplish through this chain of Old Testament quotations. He wants to help us see angels as full as he could possibly make them with seven Old Testament quotations. And remember how I told you about the stranger. He just assumes we know everything about the Bible. So he just goes off. So let's geek out for a bit, and we're going to work through this before we get to some application. So if you guys are cool to geek out on angels just for a minute. We're going to start, like I said, in verse 4. Read with me. Should be on the screen as well. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is a Psalm 2 Old Testament reference. And it is actually something that gives us quite a bit of insight into the relationship and title of angels. The word angel is actually way more of a job description, just so everybody knows. It means messenger, it means a herald. And the word angel, if you like to geek out on this stuff, occurs 34 times out of the 66 books of the Bible. 108 times in the Old Testament and 165 times in the New. So if you did the math very quick and you're very smart, that's around 275 times in the Bible. And that's just the title, angel. They are called so much more. For starters, only two angels actually are given names. Did you know that? It's Michael and Gabriel and Eddie. There's an Eddie angel in there somewhere. Or Jimmy, whatever. I thought that would be amazing. And here's Eddie. Anyway, whatever. I thought it was funny. Every other angel has been called everything from ministers to, to, to watchers to hosts to spirits to even sons of God. Now, that should throw us off. They've been called sons of God because the stranger is saying they've never been called son. So what's up? Well, let's flesh this out. Angels are created creatures, which right off the bat should tell us that angels are not eternal beings. They are not divine. They are not omnipresent, omnipotent, or omniscient. But they are only direct creation. Does that make sense? They are direct creation. We are all descendants. They are not. Because we know from Scripture that they can't procreate or even marry. So even though they are created like us, angels have never and will never be considered the children of God or possess the title of my son. That possessive nature refers to Christ and Christ alone. So the stranger's very first point is Jesus is better than the angels by title. Just by title alone. That's the stranger's first point. Now, verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. This is from Psalm 97, and this informs us of angels' function. This is a huge distinction between them and Jesus. The fact that they are worshipers and not the worshipped. 
Angels must never, ever, and let me just say this, if anybody has this proclivity, angels must never, ever, ever be worshiped or obsessed over. Ever. Actually, anytime that happens in scripture, they're super bummed out. If somebody falls flat in front of an angel, they're like, bro, get up. Every time. So you would see angels get really uncomfortable or bothered. They are worshipers. And this shows us all angels worship the sun. How many angels are there? An indescribable amount. So an even higher ranking angels are to worship Christ. And yes, if that confused you, if you don't understand, or if you've never heard that, there are what's considered rankings of angels. This probably for some people is like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever been a part of. Bear with me. I think a better term for it is an organization of angels. That is a truer understanding. Let me just read to you an example from Ephesians 1. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. These are some of the different classes of organization. You have to compare this to Colossians chapter 1. But the stranger is saying Jesus is better than the angels in rank and in worship. His rank being the firstborn, which means the preeminence of the highest of ranks. That's why he's saying the firstborn in Hebrews. All right, bear with me. We're getting there. Verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This quotation is from Psalm 104. And that word his showcases a possessive ownership over his angels. The term wind and flames of fire can be a bit confusing, okay? And in fact, this whole quotation is confusing. And for what it's worth, if you guys are interested in this, the New Testament books, out of all of them, Hebrews and Matthew are the two books in the entire New Testament with the most difficult quotations from the Old Testament. Nonetheless, there are many opinions regarding the interpretation of angels. People think it has to do with the way they look flames and, and winds, and they think it has to do with the way they look. But if we read scripture for any amount of time, what you'll see that that just clearly isn't true. Their form or shape, for the most part, is that of a genderless human. Even though they're spoken of in the, most, in the more masculine pronouns. And wealth, uh, I just want everybody to realize, there's this assumption that angels have wings. We saw that stupid picture. That's not true. Cherubim and seraphim have wings. Those guys are not even considered angels because they're not called angels. So, winds and flames of fire, whatever the stranger is trying to get at, I think the best description that I could find through all my study is this. That Christ uses angels as instruments to carry out his will. In the same way that he uses the winds and the fires to carry out his will. Now, that sounds nice and easy, but there's no restrictions of angelic activity if you read the Bible as a whole. Meaning, yes, they are his instruments and exist to fulfill God's will and, his, and perform his commands, but, they, but the scope and variety of their activity could virtually be limitless. Everything from providing guidance, Genesis chapter 24, fighting war, 2 Kings 6, protection, 1 Kings 19, and worship, Hebrews 1. But the most important carrying out, the most important job they had of is carrying out the message of God. Now, the more I sat with this, the more I will confess. I had a few moments this week thinking, stranger, author, buddy, who cares? Who cares? No one here wakes up on Monday morning as they're setting up their pour over coffee and is thinking, oh gosh, 
is Jesus more superior to the angels? Honey, get the keys. Like nobody's freaking out. Nobody's going to think nor thought this past Monday. So why is the author stressing over angels and not prophets? Why is, they, why is he freaking out? Well, I think it has to do, if we remember the culture that he's speaking to. Many people in Israel considered angels to be both God's messenger, but also Israel's protector. Many Jewish people looked at angels as those who would come as this, like, avenger initiative to, like, vindicate the nation. And it was even out of this, the idea that guardian angels or personal angels arose. So there was a high fascination and desperation for angels at this time. And I think it's easy for us to get that we as Western people who are so influenced by secularism or suspicion of the supernatural, that we sometimes forget the importance of angels in other cultures. If you talk to missionaries or church planners from Muslim countries, they love teaching the Bible with portions where angels invade the space. See, the West, when it happens, it's slightly embarrassing. The East, when it happens, jazz hands. They are pumped. Why? Because it means credibility. And there's so much truth to that. The mention of angels is really designed to say that God is doing something to sanction and to warn and to authorize his revelation. So angels showed up and people intrinsically knew this is a direct message from God. More so than when the prophets showed up. So just to pound that drum, the angel or the presence of angels are meant to say this, pay attention. This is one of the most crucial, important messages you will hear. And it's here, Collective Church, we see our first exhortation from the stranger. Again, if you remember from our introduction last week, the book of Hebrews can be boiled down to three words. Hebrews 13, 22. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. The first exhortation for today comes on us now, and it's this. If the Son, if Jesus Christ, who outstrips the angels in every way, comes with a message from God, then how much greater is the sanction, the warning, and the authority? This argument has been called from lesser to greater. Parents, you do this all the time. This is what the argument is. If the argument is true in a less important situation and has ramifications, then it is also true in a more important situation and how much greater are the ramifications. So for example, I tell my daughter not to say mean words to my son. There he goes, walking over there. He's doing something. You're going to get in trouble. Where are you going? Anyway, don't worry about it. Sit down. Holy smokes. So I tell my daughter, don't say mean words to 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 your brother. Five seconds later, he comes out with a black eye. And she goes, I punched him in the face. (laughs) Sweetie, Violet, that's not okay. But she thought that was okay because instead, so here's my point. When something is true for something smaller, it is more true for something bigger. This is the argument from lesser to greater. So then what is the lesser argument from angels? What is angels saying? What is that smaller argument, that lesser argument? It's this. It's how to escape. It was an escape plan. Escape from what? We'll find out. Chapter 2, verse 1. Look down at it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... 
How shall we escape? How shall we escape? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There are a few things which are probably not very easy to talk about from the pulpit. Yes, the pervading supernatural, you know, for sure, whatever. But another one would be retribution for sin. And yet, could anything, collective church, be of more higher importance? I've been talking with some of the people in our community recently, and it's been this interesting conversation I've had where we've all kind of come to agree that what we have discussed or what we need to discuss as a church is a stronger sense of sin. Sin being our desire to be God. Christians to take personal, moral accountability with God. With greater gravity. See, part of welcoming the challenge that Hebrews will bring is asking for a heavier awareness or eyes to see what hidden sin may lurk within our hearts. Asking our discipleship groups, what have you seen? Or asking our spouse, where might I repent? When was the last time we did that? Luckily, I have a sweet wife who just tells me. You know what I'm saying? Like, she does that. I don't even have to ask her. I'm just joking. She's very sweet. Wherever she is, she's not here. Is mom here? Oh, she's pointing to her. Great, she is here. I was joking. But here's the thing. To skew the concept of personal sin, to skew the bad news, then the good news ceases to be wonderful. What if what we really needed was a stronger sense of our sin? Look how the stranger makes this case. This is what he does. And this is, I think, going to blow some people's mind because this is epic. Verse 14 of chapter 1. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Okay, so get this. This is fun. We get the high placement of Jesus and we get the lower placement of angels. But verse 14 does something quite different with placement. It shows us the difference of angels by comparison to you and I. So, in other words, not only is the Son superior to angels, but angels must also be distinguished from human beings who inherit salvation. This is very important. This is why the supernatural, the divine, is not superfluous, but rather critical. We are radically different from angels, but we have one massive thing in common. And I'll let C.S. Lewis tell us what it is. He says, the sin, both of men and of angels was rendered possible by the fact that God gave us free will. So each created being, both man and angel, have the ability to choose, to choose to reject or choose to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. People are making that decision today in this moment. But only one of these creatures can inherit salvation. A redeemer has risen for fallen human beings, but not for fallen angels. He became a human being. That's his argument, the stranger's argument. That's, the, the, that's Hebrews' exhortation. Last week, like I told you, that we were going to be arriving to one of the most incredible truths, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we're going to be arriving to it in very unfamiliar ways. This is one of those ways. If you notice, we're catapulted right into the heart of the incarnation and cross work of Christ, but all in the context of angels. We're going to dip into verse 7 of next week. It says this, of chapter 2. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. In other words, we see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels, that is, he emptied himself, became a nobody for us. And friends, 
This rocks the angelic socks off all creatures. Let me show you first Peter. This, this is so rad. It says this, concerning this salvation, what we're talking about, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what, what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Here it comes. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And here we go. Things into which angels long to look. Ah, this is so sick. Yes, angels are incredibly majestic and powerful and mysterious beings. Yes, angels live in the constant presence of God's eternal bounding glory. And still, from time to time, their mind wanders to earth to here and now. To them, something so stupendous has happened. Something so incredible has happened that even these immortal beings express the persistent longing to look in. They look at us and they go, What could possibly and consistently consume the attention of God-fixated creatures? What could draw their attention away? It's this, that their God would take the ultimate, ultimate retribution for mankind. That's the gospel. See, far too many Christians believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is like toddler theology. Step one, did it. Now let's get into the meaty stuff. Angels never grow tired of looking into the gospel. They watch this God of ours leave the throne and come. And it fascinates them. Some might even say it makes them jealous. To the angels, there is no end to gospel exploration. They are startled by it. And yet... Mankind, it says, neglects it. That word neglect we read in its original meaning means, means apathetic or doesn't care enough. And not only the angels themselves are not the redeemer, but they themselves are not redeemed. They're rather ministering spirits to sent to help you and I. Side note, if I want to really blow your mind, it even says that we are told that we will judge angels. For, for more on that, you can email me at lorenzo at collectivechurch.com. Stupid joke. Just trying to get you guys back. It's okay. The stranger paints with contrast like a neon acrylic and basically says this. The stranger's trying so hard to make this point. Basically, what on earth are you doing fastening your attention on the messenger's and neglecting the message. That's what he's so bothered by. Why are you focusing on the messengers and neglecting the message of such a great salvation? And before anybody here says, yeah, you pagan heathens, be more like us Christians. Look at these words. This is directly, look at chapter two's words. This is directly directly towards, towards Christians, towards Jesus' followers. It says over and again, we, we, we. It's Christians who are neglecting the gospel. It's Christians who are clawing for angels over Christ. It's Christians who fasten their attention elsewhere. 
See, this particular form of angelic adoration from the first century might not be ours. Nobody here may be obsessed with angels, but us looking for some other mediation is common among every generation, in every society, in every culture, in every heart. We seek the message of angels. We seek shadows. We lean our desires and our decisions and our determination towards other revelations. Even good ones. But they are shadows compared to the sun. Famed preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there is nothing, nothing, nothing more dangerous than to put secondary matters in this first position. So for the Christian man and the Christian woman to mature, to grow up, is when they seek and find what they're looking for in Christ alone. That is a sign of maturity. So a question of exhortation is, what are the angels in our lives that, that we seek out, that we are listening to? Those differing messages and narratives that we listen to and trust. So for example, if it's Beyonce, her opinion will color our lives. If it's political, then that color will color our Christian lives. If it's the language of certain theological camps, their opinion will color our lives. Who holds our cultural capital, you could say? Now, there's nothing wrong with listening to others, especially if it's Queen Bee. There's nothing wrong with listening. So then, Casey, what's the issue? I believe what's relevant to us is similar to the Jewish Christian audience who heard the sermon. Here's the issue. The unfamiliar. That's the issue. It's the unfamiliar. Angels were familiar. Angels brought a law that was familiar. Angels brought regulations that were familiar. Angels spoke of a God which was familiar. The message for Christ, message of Christ for us, excuse me, is unfamiliar, thus uncomfortable, thus unwanted. And yet, according to Hebrews, it's the most reliable form of communication from God himself. Is there anything, anything, anything within your Christian life that that you might be hearing the unfamiliar and uncomfortable wooing of Christ with? So how are we to navigate the murky waters of deciphering these messages for our worth and our focus? Look it down at verse 1 of chapter 2. says, therefore. Now, this probably most people know, but I'll just say it anyway. But whenever you read the word therefore, we are to ask what? What is it there for? Right? What is this there for? That's what we're supposed to ask. Basically, it's trying to tell us, wake up. This is the conclusion of what was just said. So never just pass over therefores. You get it. Verse one. Therefore, we must pay attention closer That was not it. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The word drifting in its original language can have a few different meanings, and these are all pretty radical, okay? This is how they were used in its original day. Drifting can either be if somebody's like working out or running and the ring on their finger slips off, or it can mean that if you're eating some sort of piece of meat and it goes down the wrong tube, That can be used the same word for drifting. Or it has a very strong nautical imagery, like a ship at sea, which, friends, that just swoons me. Nautical imagery in the Bible, I get jazzed. But here it is. 
Nonetheless, what do all of those original meanings have in common? The choking and the finger and all that. What do they have in common? It's the failure to pay attention. It's the failure to pay attention. We drift out by seeking others' influences, by other answers, by other voices, by other wants met, because the stranger says, we, you, I, have failed to pay attention. Did anybody, you guys remember, did you go to a beach as a kid? You remember you'd go in the water, and you'd be playing around with your siblings or by yourself, if you were an only child. Sorry. <laughs> Whatever. You were playing around by yourself in the water, or siblings, and... Do you guys remember, like, all of a sudden, you would look up from, like, being out there for, like, 30 minutes, and your mom was nowhere in sight? Does that ever happen to you? Like, back in the day where moms just didn't care? Remember that when parents didn't care back in the day? You sure you're bleeding? Yeah, go in the shark-infested waters. (laughs) Give me a break. So, what happened? We drifted. It happened all the time. I would look up, and I would not be able to see my mom, and she was, like, a mile that way. And I was like, what happened? This is drifting. This is drifting. The ocean's currents are subtle. Subtle. You think, I, I think that, that, that among the most deadliest of things in this Christian life is that which is subtle. Spiritual drifting is often imperceptible. It's a passive process. Now, for some here, that may upset the paradigm because we have this idea that it's, no, you have to actively walk. No, no, no. Drifting, you do not actually have to do anything to be affected by it. It actually happens by doing nothing. By doing nothing. Like every open water film, they don't notice until it's too late when they start to pay attention. The stranger says there are only two momentums. Sailing forward with fidelity, as one commentator says, with obedience and orthodoxy as our oars, or drift, or drift into nothingness, or drift and drift into the open vast sea where there is nothing still. And now, if that's true, bear with me, if that's true, drifting's a real caution. That means Jesus has not drifted. That means God has not drifted like many of us believe he does. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. It says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens and the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. It is a satanic lie to believe that God has ever left us. Our our faithfulness is not a diagnostic for his faithfulness. But you are the same. God is undrifting. Christ is the anchor. Look at this beautiful verse of chapter 6 of Hebrews. We uh, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Steadfast anchor of the soul. I hope that enters into the inner place. Thus, pay attention to what you have heard, he says, past tense. No new revelation is going to come from this church gathering. No new spiritual innovation is going to come from your discipleship groups. But to pay attention that what we've been hearing for and about for ages, which I don't think any of us really want. We want that new, fresh, new wants, new needs met. Thus, if not, if not, we become migratory people. Fine, I'll go find my, mets, or excuse me, my, my needs met elsewhere. 
But here he says, no, no, you've heard it. You know it. Pay attention, he says. It was actually these exact words back in the day that culturally that they would use. See, when a ship was coming into a port, they would use this exact word, pay attention to these engineless ships. They would be coming in and the, the person on the harbor, on the port would be screaming, pay attention. Because what would happen then is they had to cut the sails at the exact moment. They had to cut the sails at the right moment. And if they didn't do it at the right moment and pay attention, the ship would just float on by. So they screamed, pay attention, pay attention. Friends, the author's intent is extremely clear. And we're going to start wrapping it up here. It's this. Christians must, for the sake, for the sake of not drifting, take personal commitment. And to take personal responsibility for one's faith, for one's discipleship, soul, mission, and church. I think a lot of the times we believe that the responsibility of our soul belongs to the pastors. The responsibility of the soul belongs to the person next to me. We, he says, the stranger says, must take responsibility. He says, and here's where the unfamiliar, uncomfortable, unwanted basically opens our door and just runs in. And it's this. Christ is better. Whatever your fears are, whatever are they wants, Christ is better. Christ is more superior to the other messages and narratives you are hearing. Christ is better, so release yourself, commit yourself wholly to him. Beg him to command you. Christ is better. For what it's worth, that word better shows up more in this book than any other book in the New Testament. He's better, he's better, he's better. Not just better than the angels, but the book of Hebrews continues, guys, to do this. What you're going to notice is he's, he's going to go off and say he's better than Moses in the chapter 4, better than Joshua. Then he starts freaking out. He's better than Aaron and the whole priest system. He's better than Tabernacle. He's better than all this other sacrifices. So much so that we go, stranger, we get it. Chill out. Just tell us. He's the best. We get it. Why not just have this sermon be very short, stranger, and just say that Jesus is the best? We get it. Well, this is what makes me love the book of Hebrews and love the stranger is instead of affirmation of utter superiority, the stranger does something more spellbinding, more arresting. He gives you and I, those with free will like the angels, the option to commit and take responsibility. How does he do this? He makes comparisons. He asks us to do the same in our life and make comparisons in our life. He's doing it for what they knew. Levi, Moses, all these incredible pillars in their faith. And he's asking every single one of us to do the same thing each and every day. You really think not doing that or being a part of that is better. You really think trusting her, trusting him, their narrative is better. You really think that message is better. He makes comparisons. Jesus is the axis after axis, which he shows cases, reasons why Jesus is better. So thus, I'll just say this to wrap it up. Hebrews isn't about forcing us. It's about proving to us. Even our remaining verses are verifiable and motivational proof. The stranger goes off, and I'm just going to read this to him, but he just wants to prove to us why he's better. That Christ is supreme above all. Hence, commit, own, invest, take responsibility. This is what he says. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was arrested, excuse me, attested to us, uh, to us by those who heard. While God also bore witnesses by signs, wonders, and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. 
It's just like you can hear the stranger saying, what more could you possibly want? Let's take that question with us in time of response. What more could we possibly want? What else are we saying is better? We have many wants and many needs, and Christ knows, and Hebrews is promising us that Christ can be found in them all. So what would you like prayer for today? I'll confess, I'm always a bit baffled with our response time in prayer. I'm a bit baffled. I'm going to say this as the pastor, one of the pastors here at Collective. I have many conversations with people who are struggling, like in the book of Hebrews, they're drifting, they're not taking responsibility, there's temptation, and I ask them, have you prayed, or have you been prayed for? And their immediate reaction is, we set these times up for the church to operate as intercessors to pray for you. And that's in anything in your life, your marriage, your pain, your life. So today, we have these beautiful opportunities. There's two people up against that shelf, and two people between these trees who want to pray for you. They don't know you. Guess what? That's fine. That's awesome. They're not going to interrogate you. They're going to intercede for you. And as well, when you're ready, we have communion down here in the front. This is for those who know the answer to this question. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Communion is for those who know how to answer that question. Meaning, the answer is this. You don't. The stranger has just given us a rhetorical question. There is no escape. Jesus was and is the great escape plan from both the punishment of sin and the terribles of this world. And if that was true when the angel said it, how much heavier is it when Jesus says it? So come out your ready, take the double stack cups, and let's join in with the angels who worshipped, who sang, who adored the one who was better. Amen? Let's do that now.